What's up, everybody? Welcome back to a brand new episode of The Arnie's. We are three young men that would absolutely cower at an offer we couldn't refuse with nothing better to do. I'm Matt Johnson, and I just wish all three of the Lord of the Rings movies were on this list. I'm Keith Baker, and I'm feeling good as Blondie. And I'm Austin Terry, and I can't believe the current state of Liam Neeson's career. What's this man doing? He's a good it's actor. shocking. <laughs> you look at this, and then you look at the fact that he's done three Taken films. You just kind of shake your head. And like a Ice Road Truckers movie. I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> did you see that Ice Road Trucker? <laughs> I didn't see it, Keith. I actively avoided that Why one. Why is he still doing action movies? We'll get to the state of Liam, I'm sure, in next week's episode where we do a full breakdown of the three Taken films and the Ice Road Trucker action flick. So stay tuned for that. But let's stick with today's show, everybody. We are returning to our bracket format. This time, we're looking at several very well-regarded movies off the IMDb Top 250 list to determine which is the best of the best. Last year around this time, we did a bracket called The Best Best Picture Winner. We each chose 12 of our favorite movies to ever win the ultimate prize and battled it out to see which was the best. To continue that tradition of award season, we're doing something a little bit similar. So IMDb actually keeps a list of their top 250 movies of all time. So we grab the top 12 off of that, and we're going to put them all through our bracket format to see which comes out on top. I think this will be an interesting one because most of these movies are rated by people in IMDb, not necessarily critics or anything, something like Rotten Tomatoes, for example. So, a lot of these movies could be considered popular choices in addition to the undeniable classics included in there as well. So, Austin and Keith, with that out of the way, as usual, how about you fill me in on what your experience was like going through these movies in preparation? Had you seen most of these before? I had seen the majority of these before. There was a couple on here I had seen for the first time, so it was very exciting for me to go and watch some of like the highest regarded movies of all time and, and experience that for the first time. I think for the most part, this was a really fun bracket to prepare for. All of these are great movies on here. We definitely have no bad films. I do have a couple that I'm like, the reputation is preceding the actual quality of the film, and maybe that's why it's in the top 12. So I have a few I'm excited to get into, but overall, this was a fun one to prepare for. Yeah, same here. I've seen the majority of them. I think there's maybe four I had not seen before, so it was good to go and watch those. And I loved all four of them. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> I love two or three out of the four. Um, and the other one was all right. I, and I, I'm with Austin. I think they're all pretty good, but there's definitely some some weaker ones in here. I can definitely think of a lot of others that would be good candidates to replace these. So I'm just excited to see y'all's thoughts. Yeah, my experience was pretty much the same. I think um, just like Austin, I had seen pretty much all of these with the exception of two. So there was two that was really fun to watch for the first time because they're included in this list among movies that I really do love. So it's like, wow, I've heard about the reputation of these movies. Are they going to hold up? And I think they did for the most part. So I'm really excited to get into those two in particular, just because that'll be a fresh conversation for me. And the rest of them, yeah, I think I can definitely appreciate where Keith's coming from. There's certainly some in here that it's not that I don't know why they're in here. It's just that, yeah, I can think of some other ones that I think might fit the bill a little bit better. But still, at least for Christ's sakes, at least this might be like our first bracket out of, I don't know, like the 12 or 13 we've done, where I can definitively say there are no bad movies in here. There are certainly some that I think have some weird stuff in them, and do they hold up? I don't know, but I think they're all at least good, so I'm really excited to talk about a bunch of good movies for once. So whenever we do brackets talking about, like our recent one, for example, like the rom-com bracket, the criteria is pretty easy. You know, is it romantic? Is it funny? It's kind of all you'd need. With a holiday movie, does it take place during the holiday times and give you that nostalgic feeling? It's all you need. This is a bit different, so I know we usually talk about criteria before jumping into it. Do you guys have any, since these are all very different movies? like? Can we even have criteria or should we just keep it loose? What are you guys thinking? I don't know if I have a criteria, but I do have, I'm, I'm giving bonus points to 
movies that maybe came out in the 40s or the 50s that still hold up and feel modern to some of the, the later movies that are on this list that maybe came out in the early 2000s and the 90s. That's where I'm giving some bonus points to. As for criteria of, of what's actually going to win this bracket, I think it has to be a perfect movie to win this one today. I don't think we can point to like one specific flaw the movie has because this is essentially deciding the best movie ever made. I guess I, I mean, that is true. That is true. I mean, we could you could really like list it all out, like best performances, best story, all that jazz. I just don't know. But I think I'm, I think I'm kind of in Austin's boat. I mean, yeah, what's the best movie out of these 12? If, if, if people are saying these are the, the top 12 movies of all time, then let's, let's see if that's true. Yeah, yeah, I like what you guys said there, because I was going into it like, I don't really have any criteria, just if it's really awesome, I'll vote for it. But yeah, I do like that. I think maybe as we get towards the end, I'm going to try and think a bit more about, is this a quote unquote perfect movie? Is there a perfect movie? I don't know. But does it feel like it kind of earns its keep amongst this list? I think that's what's going to make things interesting. Because like he said at the start, there's plenty of movies that I could think of that I would like to see in a top 12 of all time. So since those are not there and I'm, I'm just dealing with these, like, which is the best of the best? And like you said, Keith, that can be performances, story. I mean, there's so many different things to consider. So, yeah, I think as we get further in this list, it's going to get interesting. So, yeah. Can it be a movie about a, a white wizard hugging a short little hobbit creature? I don't know. It's a great question. <laughs> so with that out of the way, let's leave the past behind and get into this. Keith, how about you let the audience know about our one-seaters today? All right. So our one-seaters for today are the top four out of the top 12 on the list. In order, it's The Shawshank Redemption, The Godfather, The Godfather Part 2, and The Dark Knight. That's right. So those are our one-seaters. Everything that wins in this first wild card round will go on to face one of those prestige films. All right. So to kick off our wild card round today, we have the number eight movie on the IMDb Top 12 list, Pulp Fiction versus number nine, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Pulp Fiction was released in 1994, is directed by Quentin Tarantino, and stars John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, Vin Raines, and Bruce Willis. The lives of two mob hitmen, a boxer, a gangster, and a pair of dinner bandits intertwine in four tales of violence and redemption. And The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly came out in 1966, and it's directed by Sergio Leone. It stars Clint Eastwood, Eli Wallach, and Lee Van Cleef. A bounty hunting scam joins two men in an uneasy alliance against a third in a race to find a fortune in gold buried in a remote cemetery. All right, guys. So just to start us off, just for a little fun factor, I wonder if Austin's in the same boat with me. One of the two movies I had not seen before was, in fact, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. So trying to compare that against Pulp Fiction, a movie I've seen a lot, is going to be interesting. Because I, I got to say, I, Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is very long. Very, very <laughs> long. But I got to say, I found it kind of pulling me in as the movie went along. And by the end, I, I was pretty bought in. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, The Good and Bad, The Ugly was also one I had not seen before, and very long. I agree with that. A lot of just <laughs> shots on people doing nothing that could have been cut out of the movie, I feel yeah. like. <laughs> <laughs> probably. Probably fair. This was my first time also seeing The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, mm. which is surprising because I grew up watching westerns with my dad, and some kind of used to that, the whole spaghetti western era of movies, but this was one that I had not seen. Uh, but I'm with you guys. It was very long. and There was lots of stuff they probably could have cut. <laughs> Interesting enough, though, I think Pulp Fiction has a very similar runtime. And yeah. I don't know if this, if this throws any points to that direction, but I have seen Pulp Fiction countless times. 
And I never feel the runtime of that film. I think the style and the writing and particularly from Samuel Jackson's character, everything about that movie, I just makes it so much fun and it flies by for me. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to like about the good, the bad and the ugly. I think I kind of already alluded to it, at least for me. It's just like whenever the movie starts out and you're like, what the hell is this about? I guess it's focusing on these three characters. Okay. But then, like, cut to the very end, watching them in that three-way duel, it's like, wow, we've come such a long way. And I really kind of like the element of they're all just looking for this Confederate gold, and what are they going to do with it? How are they going to get there? And then, so where we get at the end, I really love. But then also, of course, along the way, I think it helps that we really only have three main characters, and I think they all did such a great job seeing young Clint Eastwood in his prime. I thought, you know, he's a man of few words, but every time he has one, he really sells it. I've never, I don't know if I've ever seen Lee Van Cleef in a movie who played Angel Eyes, and I thought he was just an awesome, awesome He's very scary. Really scary. Yeah. Yeah. I think the best scene of the movie is whenever uh, they get to the union camp, and then they're calling out, like, roll call or whatever, and they get to Bill Carson, who Eli Wallach's character is impersonating whenever he finally says here. It just cuts to a random, like, the back of a Union soldier's head, and he turns around, and it's Angel Eyes. He's, like, impersonating <laughs> a Union officer, and he just smiles. It's like, oh, God. So I thought the three leads were fantastic, and they really helped carry us through, I think, the long running time. I think you do kind of get the same experience with Pulp Fiction, though, where yeah. it starts up, starts up in a diner, and you're like, what the hell is going on here? And then by the end of the movie, it's like, oh, it, it all pieces together now. And, and nobody does a story like that better than Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, that's I true. Love the time jumps. So I think we do, we do got to vote here because we got to move on. And uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and start us off. For me, I had a good time with the good, the bad, and the ugly, but I was bored for parts of the movie, and I was not bored with Pulp Fiction. So I'll cast my vote for Pulp Fiction. Yeah, this is pretty easy for me, too. I'm going to go with Pulp Fiction. Yeah, it's one of my favorites as well. I will vote Pulp Fiction to make it a classic Arnie's unanimous call. We love seeing it. Like Austin mentioned, I did really like The Good, Bad, and the Ugly. I will watch it again for sure, just because I want to see if it kind of like diminishes at all, because I really did like it. But, you know, we'll see. It was a good one. But Pulp Fiction, I mean, hard to beat that. All right. Well, Pulp Fiction will go on to face the number one movie in the IMDb Top 12, The Shawshank Redemption, in the next round. All right. Now let's move on to the number five ranked movie, 12 Angry Men versus number 12, Forrest Gump. So 12 Angry Men was released in 1957, directed by Sidney Lumet. It stars Henry Fonda, Lee J. Cobb, E.G. Marshall, and Jack Warden. And this one tells the story of a jury of 12 men as they deliberate the conviction or acquittal of an 18-year-old defendant on the basis of reasonable doubt, forcing the jurors to question their morals and values. And for our first ever film returning to an Arnie's bracket, we have mm. Force Gump, which released in 1994 and was directed by Robert Zemeckis. It stars Tom Hanks, Robin Wright, Gary Sinise, McKelty Williamson, and Sally Field. The story depicts several decades in the life of Forrest Gump, a slow-witted and kind-hearted man from Alabama who witnesses and unwittingly influenced several defining historical events in the 20th century United States. All right, so we're already to it. So I'll throw it out there. The other movie that I had never seen before was 12 Angry Men. What about you guys? I had also never seen 12 Angry Men, and I was absolutely enthralled and in love with this film by the time Mm. the credits rolled. Nice. Glad to hear it. It's pretty great. It's pretty great. Yeah, my dad showed me this movie way back in the day, and I've seen it at least five or six times. Love this movie. I think it's crazy the way they use camera angles in this movie, because you spend the entire movie essentially in one room watching these jurors debate the court case, and the setting never gets boring. The way the camera angles change, the way it slowly, like... At the beginning of the film, you start out like looking down on them and then you slowly get down to eye level. 
for a 1950s movie, I was just blown away by the way they made this room feel so interesting. How like the tensions just gradually get higher and higher as they go through their debate and then it starts raining outside. You can hear that. Uh, man, it's so cool. The best part for me, just because it ties into, you know, the direct tension that we're feeling. Oh, what choice are they going to make? Is everybody going to agree or not? And like they kind of visually show that by having it be the hottest day in New York. And by the end of the movie, they're all just like drenched in sweat. <laughs> so yeah. It's just a nice touch for sure. I don't know why they closed that window. So they all could have stood to go out in the rain and cool off a little bit. <laughs> yeah, they could have taken a break. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's so many things I want to talk about this movie. Uh, I know we'll probably get to some later if it moves on. If not, I want to get some highlights out. But it kind of ties into what Austin said with like uh, the way they shot just in this very small room. I also, in addition to that, loved how I don't even know what I would call it. Just like some of the, I don't know, maybe like demonstrations they did were so I thought they were going to be stupid. But whenever it's like, OK, so th the witness says that he got out of bed and made his way in 15 seconds to the door and caught the guy running down the stairs. So that means he must have walked down this hallway, double backed in 15 seconds and he had a bad leg. Well, let me demonstrate it. So like they show you like a picture of like the apartment layout. And then is it even possible for him to do that? It's like, why is this interesting? <laughs> but it really is. It was super cool watching them basically go through all these witness statements and discover if it was even possible, basically. I think, too, for a movie in the 50s, like a, a story about prejudices and personal biases influencing a case was like super engaging and feels very relevant today too yeah mm -hmm. lots of racism in that room yeah which i'm glad they didn't shy away from back then man the performances though what y'all think of lee j cobb he's oh what a dude right there <laughs> yeah juror number four also known as the last one to kind of uh give his not guilty verdict i thought he was great henry fonda as a kind of our catalyst who brings it up also fantastic. I mean, the act, this is like, this is a character piece. This is an actor's acting movie, and they're all so good. Even the ones that don't talk that much. Henry Fonda, I was blown away with. He, like, his character and his acting feels like a product of its time, but then at the same time, it's still like, it doesn't feel outdated to me, which I was shocked by. No. That's usually my biggest issue with old movies is like, the writing and stuff just feels like a different world, and, and this one didn't feel like that at all. And sometimes mm -hmm. the way they talk, they talk in that like that weird, like that weird northeastern fake accent. What are you doing? Well, hey, hey? How, how are you doing there? See? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that murder? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we also do got to bring uh, Forrest Gump into the conversation, and I think we talked about it in our last bracket with this movie. But it's just such a pleasant, fun movie, and it's always so engaging whenever it's either on TV or you just decide to put it on and watch it. Yeah, Forrest Gump's another Pulp Fiction for me. Just a, a good comfort movie. Love the story. I love all the, the comedy in it, all the characters like Lieutenant Dan and, and Jenny and, and Bubba. They're all so fun. Forrest Gump is another one like Pulp Fiction. I've, I've actually probably been watching Forrest Gump even longer than that because I'm sure I watched it as a kid as well. Um, and it definitely impacted me a lot when I was younger. And as I've gotten older, I know there's like this weird, there's like some vitriol against this movie now. And I think it's just because people are disappointed that it won Best Picture. And it's funny because on this bracket, I won't spoil the ones that we haven't talked about yet, but 1994, man, that was a year for movies. And we're going to get to some of the other ones that Forrest Gump beat. My only real knock against Forrest Gump, and it's kind of just a general thing, is as I've gotten older, I feel like the movie more and more just feels like a fun watch to me. I don't know if I get anything else from it. It's just enjoyable. I feel good watching it. I like the characters. But I don't know. Whenever I walk away, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, that was enjoyable. That, that's Forrest Gump. I like that movie. But it's kind of just fun it, and it's heartfelt. I, I don't know. It's kind of it to me now, I think. 
I, yeah, I, I don't know if the movie really has a, a, a ton to say with the character. I think it just wants to take its premise of let's put Forrest Gump into all these situations and see what might have happened. And yeah. that's not a bad thing for no, the movie, no. but I, I think you're right. And in, in, in this bracket specifically, I don't know if it's going to beat out other movies just because you're right. It is just like you put it on and it's like, oh, yeah, that was a good time. And then you kind of move on with your death. It doesn't really stick with you. Yeah, it's definitely a, a make you feel good kind of movie. You can put it on anywhere. But if you're debating it with 12 Angry Men, man, I think 12 Angry Men would take it in performances. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. I do love the performances in Forrest Gump. And I guess to play devil's advocate on my own point, there are like little things they say. It's not like the whole overarching plot. Like, again, kind of like in the inverse, as I've gotten older, I really, really love Gary Sinise as Lieutenant Dan in that story. That gets way more impactful, I think, the older you get. Watching him kind of, as Forrest says, make his peace with God, so to speak, is a really beautiful little side plot they have in there. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of that's kind of it. It's just like a bunch of little side things that I really like. Whereas like you said, Keith, when you're talking about 12 Angry Men, it's like, I don't know, that one, not only is the acting great, not only are the little character moments so good, but kind of what they're doing in that story, it feels like it's impactful in their own world. It's relevant today still somehow all these years later. I don't know. It's a tough one. Once again, I think we got a vote and we may have another unanimous on our hands here, but I will be voting for 12 Angry Men. Yeah, I, I can't believe I'm saying it. I, I do want to, just before I close out here, say I do still really love Forrest Gump. It's a really great and fun movie. But comparing it to a movie I had never seen before, I think I'm kind of with Austin. It just, it kind of hit me out of nowhere. I knew this was like a well-regarded movie, but it somehow hit me harder than that on top of what I was expecting going in. So as crazy as it sounds, I think I got to go 12 Angry Men as well. I thought it was so good. And and, and maybe this is just because we're doing this in a bracket of where every movie is three plus hours, hour and a half runtime, and to be that good. It's the shortest movie. Incredible. Incredible. Thank you for saving me some time. <laughs> <laughs> Man, yeah. I think I'm probably going to have to go with 12 Angry Men as well. Well, Forrest Gump is one of my favorite movies to watch and put on. And 12 Angry Men, I've, you know, I maybe watch it every few years. Uh, I think it's just a little bit more powerful and makes more of an impact. So it's moving on. So 12 Angry Men will go on to face the number four ranked movie, The Dark Knight. Another movie about justice. Yeah. (laughs) And vengeance. Justice. Up next, we have a little franchise battle with number seven, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, versus number 10, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. The Fellowship of the Ring came out in 2001. It's directed by Peter Jackson. It stars a huge ensemble cast led by Elijah Wood, Ian McKellen, Viggo Mortensen, and Sean Astin. Set in Middle-earth, the Dark Lord Sauron seeks the One Ring to return to power. The Ring has found its way to the young hobbit Frodo Baggins, who along with eight companions begin their journey to Mount Doom in the land of Mordor, the only place where the Ring can be destroyed. All right, and then we're skipping over from the first movie to the third movie with The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King from 2003, of course, directed once again by Peter Jackson. And our same ensemble cast returns, this time alongside Andy Serkis, Miranda Otto, David Wenham, Carl Urban, and John Noble. Frodo, Sam, and Gollum are making their way toward Mount Doom and Mordor in order to destroy the One Ring, unaware of Gollum's true intentions, while Gandalf, Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, and the rest of the gang are joining forces together against Sauron and his legions. Alright guys, so this is going to be an interesting one because I'm a diehard Lord of the Rings fan. I love the books, I love the franchise, which includes movies, video games, everything in between. Excited for that Amazon TV show, by the way. Um, And I know I've showed you guys these movies before. And you weren't a fan of them. I know that was a long time ago, and I can't remember if you've tried watching them again since then. But the main reason I'm excited about this matchup is because, at least to start, 
And I didn't set this up, everybody. Go check out the IMDb Top 250 list to confirm. We're going to start conf- like going against one Lord of the Rings and another one. So at least we can like talk about the merits of one of them, even if you guys don't like these movies. So <laughs> I will, we'll have one go on and we'll see how far it gets. But I just wanted to set it up that way. Austin and Keith, it's been a while. How is revisiting Middle Earth? I actually have tried to watch these movies a, a couple of times since you showed them to us when we were just uh, young little boys. And this time <laughs> around, I, I did find myself a bit more sucked in uh, with Fellowship of the Ring. I can I like I know these movies are well made. All the performances are great. The battles still look incredible, of course. I think where where these movies lose me is I am just very uninvested in the Frodo storyline. And that takes up the bulk of this entire franchise. And every time we go back to him, he's always doing the like least interesting part of the story to me. So that that's where these movies lose me. I'll say this this time around, it's a very simple vote. I find Return of the King more engaging than Fellowship of the Ring, and I, I had a lot more fun with that one than I did was just like the overall setup of the franchise and Fellowship of the Ring. Austin pretty much just copied my entire thoughts. Yeah, like I'm, I'm right with you there. I, I do not like, I don't, I don't want to say I do not like. I'm not as invested, like you said, Austin, in the Frodo story. I would much rather see more of like Aragon and Gandalf and even Merry and Pippin and all those guys together. I liked all that stuff. But Frodo and Sam and, and Gollum, I don't know, something about it just kind of kind of bored me a little bit but I, I could see why people love these movies but i still this time this go around watching them i definitely liked them a lot more but i'm still not quite there yet maybe i need to rewatch them again <laughs> to, <laughs> I, don't I don't know maybe it's interesting i feel like return of the king used to be my favorite but as i've gotten older i think i do kind of appreciate where we are in the fellowship more and i feel like the way we get introduced to those characters is super just well set up. I love Aragorn so much. I think Viggo Mortensen might be my favorite performance out of the trilogy. And yeah, just watching where these little hobbits who nobody kind of batting an eye towards and seeing them have to take on this burden and the way they set that up in Fellowship and watching where things end in kind of a sad spot and watching them have to kind of diverge paths is always something that I think hit me a little bit harder. I think Return of the King's great, but I think it, that one's, of course, a lot more about wrapping things up. So lots of battles, which are all great. I think even like the moments where they go to CG more than practical, of course, doesn't hold up super well, but at least like that there is a lot of practical stuff there. So since that one's more about kind of wrapping things up and a lot of battles and stuff, I think I might actually vote for Fellowship of the Ring just because I like it a little bit more. I think the set pieces in Return of the King are just with all the extras involved. Oh, it's, yeah. it's insane how much they were able yeah. to do practical. And I, I think for just the battle aspect and it just for me being more engaging, my vote's probably going to be Return of the King just because I find that one more interesting and you don't have to spend as much time with Frodo as you do in, in Fellowship. Yeah, I'm kind of with you there, Austin. I like the battles and the way the story kind of progresses more in Return of the King. Uh, and going back to the Fellowship, though, I love the ending of Fellowship. I thought the ending, whenever Sean Bean's character uh, yeah. dies and, and Viggo is mourning him and all that, I thought that was incredible. But, um, but I think I'm also going to have to vote for Return of the King. All right. Well, Return of the King will go on to face the number two movie on the IMDb Top 12, The Godfather Part 1. And to end our wildcard round, let's do number six, Schindler's List versus number 11, Fight Club. Schindler's List was released in 1993 and directed by Steven Spielberg. It stars Liam Neeson, Ben Kingsley, and Ray Fiennes. The film follows Oscar Schindler, a German industrialist who saved more than a thousand mostly Polish Jewish refugees from the Holocaust by employing them in his factories during World War II. Fight Club came out in 1999, instructed by David Fincher. Stars Edward Norton, Brad Pitt, and Helena Bonham Carter. 
Norton plays the unnamed narrator, who is discontented with his white-collar job. He forms a fight club with soap salesman Tyler Durden, and becomes embroiled in a relationship with a destitute woman, Marla Singer. This is my first time seeing Schindler's List in its entirety. It's one of those movies I feel like that gets shown all the time in school, but I'd never seen it all the way through. Yeah, I'd seen this one, but only once before, and it was years ago. It's one of those movies, like, I think, stuff like Requiem for a Dream, where you watch it, and then you the credits roll, and you go, okay, that was really good, really appreciated that, great directing, great everything, but ugh, just don't want to watch it again, because it, it mm. kind of hits you. So, yeah, it, it was interesting to watch it again. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd just start by saying, yeah, all the performances were good. They do a really good job of explaining how the whole process went with Schindler um, saving the 11 or 1200 uh, Jewish people uh, from going to Auschwitz and other concentration camps. And yeah, Ray Fiennes was, golly, he was freaky. He kind of reminded me of uh, Christoph Waltz's character in Inglorious Bastards in a way. I like the whole black and white thing. I think that kind of gave it a cool feel. I would say cool feel, creepy feel, but it was cool that they did it that way. Yeah, the black and white filming of the movie kind of makes you feel like you're there. Like it, it kind of feels very timeless. I think that was a great choice for this one. Um, I like that they acknowledge that Oscar Schindler originally was not a good guy in the story. I, I like that you kind of see his growth throughout the film, but I, I like that you spend a lot of time setting up that for the most part, he really just cares about money. And it takes a lot that he witnesses before he finally kind of changes the goal of his factories. Yeah. I mean, it's a hard one to talk about. I, I think Austin, I agree with a lot of those points. I think it's super fascinating to have this I guess it's weird to call him like the Schindler character because he is a real person. But yeah, watching him go from where he started to where he ends in that final like heartbreaking scene where he just breaks down like right as he's about to have to flee the country because he's now the enemy as part of the Nazi party. But he breaks down because he realizes that maybe if I sold my car or I sold this random piece of jewelry I have, maybe I could have gotten a few more out. So it is fascinating to watch that journey. If I'm being a little bit nitpicky at times... I do think his evolution isn't always well shown. Obviously, he's just kind of a dick that loves money. And then he kind of in the black and white nature of it, you see him see the little girl with the red coat. And that's kind of the moment that turns him and then further turn whenever he sees her body being kind of um, dragged by on a cart. So I like they have those moments, but there are still moments in between with like the three hour, 20 minute running time where it's like, yeah, I mean, I want to root for him. It's taken me a long time to, but I still think that's part of the movie. I love. I, mean, I read that Spielberg said that they did black and white, and the way they filmed it was to give it a documentary feel. So, Austin, you kind of hit the nail on the head. They're trying to make us feel like we're actually there, and ugh, just experience something that violence is. It's heartbreaking. It's really hard to watch. And the thing that I think is so effective is even in moments of like triumph and hope and survival, they're always doing the realistic thing and the important thing of showing you that that wasn't the case for everybody. I always think of that scene where. Um, I guess it would be like the Schindler women from the factory. They think they're about to go into the gas chamber whenever they look up and see all these like shower heads that they've heard about. Mm. And then whenever it's just essentially washing them or cleaning them, whatever it may be, and they're like crying tears of joy, like we made it. And then they walk out and then they turn around and see a bunch of kids walking into like an underground chamber where they look up and see there's a chimney on top of it that all the smoke is coming out, realizing that we survived but they're about to kill all those kids just so that they can make room for more prisoners later. I mean, yeah, it, it's a heartbreaking movie. And I think Spielberg and the team just shot it so well. Uh, yeah. So I, I, th I think it's great. I think it's really good. 
I feel like we've been having a lot of conversations when talking about some movies, whether it be Bracket or just other conversations where like there is a great lead performance and then a great villain. But we always sometimes forget about the people in the middle that I think maybe kind of hold the movie up in a lot of ways because they're not the lead or they're not like the main antagonist, basically. Here's another great example. I mean, of course, Liam Neeson's great. Of course, Ray Fiennes is great. But Ben Kingsley mm. as Isaac Stern, you know, the guy that he's working with eventually gets sent to the concentration camps as well. I mean, what a, I think, just fantastic performance that really, without him, without that real person in Schindler's life, I don't think he ever kind of comes to the good side, doesn't realize the Nazi party's wrong. And I think Ben Kingsley kind of perfectly shows you why that was probably the case in real life. I mean, he's so good. And, that, and that's kind of what I was getting at with with um, Liam Neeson's character is is you see him really he kind of just cares about money. Then you have Stern who sees an opportunity to save as many people as he can, and, and I'm glad they gave him um, a, a lot of story time too because he really is the hero of the story. He's the one that yeah. saw this opportunity and did what he could to save everybody in his life and the people in his community. Incredibly powerful movie. There's no doubt about that. I know it's kind of a goofy transition, so forgive me, listeners out there. But since this is a bracket, we do need to talk about Fight Club as well. Um, this is another one that I have seen several times, but I watched it, I feel like, in rapid succession when I was younger. So it's been a long time since I actually saw it all the way through. I watched it semi-recently in bits and pieces, but it, it, it was weird. I forgot a lot about this movie. Like, I remembered, obviously, the fighting and stuff, but I forgot about, like, like, uh, like the political motivations, like the weird, like, um, like, Gen X, I guess. At that point, it would have been, like kind of discontentment with like your job and what do you do to get out of that, like kind of depression or just that state. So it, it was a really, really fascinating watching. What do you guys think this time around? Fight Club's one of those movies where I, I loved it the first time I saw it with the twist of, you know, it's the same guy. But every time I see it, I think I like it less. And I'm always confused about what the message is supposed to be of this movie. Yeah, I don't know what the message is that they're trying to get across in the movie. I get the message that Tyler Durden, the character, is trying to get across, does not want to live in the parameters of modern society and he's just i guess he's just very pissed off that the generation doesn't have like a purpose or something like that it's weird because it's like um it's not only the breaking the fourth wall there's like there's too, almost too many layers to it because tyler durden is the personification of what the narrator isn't and not what he wants to be but what he thinks he wants to be which is what tyler basically tells him i'm what you think you want to be so it is this interesting element like Doing what I'm doing is going to help you find purpose, like you said, Keith. And then by the end, it's like, I guess if we tear down all these corporations and erase all the debt, then somehow that will pass to other people. That being said, I definitely hear what you're saying, Austin. I, I do think, and maybe it's just because of, I don't know, maybe I'm not the right person for it, but sometimes the messaging does get lost to me as well. I'm like, okay, what are they going for in this part? I don't know. But I don't know. It's, it's well shot. I, I like the movie, but I do get confused too. You just think it's just a, this fight club where, like, the, for the men to get their aggression out, and then all of a sudden now they're like a terrorist group. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the thing too. It's like the shift to the terrorist group where it's like these are not like good people, and they're not like people you can really root for in the story either. So that that's where it's kind of gotten lost for me as I get older. The thing I like about it is that they're not, as far as we know, and Brad Pitt's character says it at the end, like these buildings are all empty. We're not killing people. We're not trying to hurt people. So they go from this fight club where it's like they're taking punches and throwing out punches to kind of get out their aggression, like you said, but also take some hurt because they don't feel anything. They're numb in their day to day. So getting hit makes them feel something, makes them feel good. And I, I weirdly kind of like that just like 
it's almost like a snap of the finger in one day. Oh, we're a terrorist cell now. Like yeah. it, it, it's like a commentary kind of, and I do appreciate that. And it's like we're not hurting people. We're just like you know trying to let other people feel what we feel. But of course, then when Meatloaf's character dies, it's like Edward Norton's like, guys, this isn't the right thing. They're like, oh, like it's definitely a commentary. I think it can be a little bit goofy at times. So I hear where you guys are coming from, but. Uh, yeah, just to throw it out there, I'm voting for Schindler's List. I do appreciate Fight Club. Maybe years from now, it's something that I'll I'll grasp a little bit more, but I'm still not at that point yet. So I, I think Schindler's List is fantastic, so it gets my vote. Schindler's List will get my vote as well. I think the sheer scope of this film, too, is something we'll probably touch on later, but no one does this better than, than Spielberg. But all these extras together, like these giant set pieces set in this time frame, just everything about this movie really worked for me. Yeah, it'll go in for me as well. Really impactful, and I think it's a story that everybody should know. All right, well, Schindler's List will go on to face The Godfather Part 2 in round two. All right, everybody, welcome to round two. Let's get things kicked off. First and foremost, we have our number one ranked movie on the IMDb Top 12, which is, of course, The Shawshank Redemption, also from 1994. This one's directed by Frank Darabont and stars Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman. It tells the story of banker Andy Dufresne, who is sentenced to life in Shawshank State Penitentiary for the murders of his wife and her lover, despite his claims of innocence. Over the following two decades, he befriends a fellow prisoner, contraband smuggler Red, and becomes instrumental in a money laundering operation led by the prison warden himself. And this one is going up against Pulp Fiction, guys. So where do we start here? I think with Shawshank, what I've always appreciated is, one, of course, the performances. I, I think we can probably say that about every movie in this list. but. I really like the the time spanning of the movie. You see pretty much these characters' entire um, lives as they serve out their sentences. And, and I think the fact that we get to know them over over this long course of time is done really well. And, and it's something I've really always enjoyed about this one. Yeah, same. And I've always enjoyed the friendships and like the bonds these guys made, all the characters made. Um and even like the weird bond that Andy has with the warden, even though it's not a it's not a yeah. not a good relationship, but they do have some sort of a bond that he's working for him and they're kind of business partners in a way. Uh, it was really weird. But, and then the, Andy's relationship with Red is one of, one of the best friendships in movies I've ever seen. Yeah, 100%. I think this movie does a great job, like Austin said, of just spanning time in a way that we don't always see because it's not like they're not doing crazy Christian Bale as Dick Cheney makeup. They just kind of change their hair slightly, maybe put glasses on them. But I think it's a credit to Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman. They just kind of hold themselves differently. They move differently as the movie goes on. And I don't know. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I would love like an insight into the writing process, how they did that, because it spans time so well. And every time they bring up the time directly, when it's like, ah, I've been in here 19 years, you're like, oh, my God, like you feel it and it means something. Yeah, it, it's, it's a weird movie, Keith, kind of like you were saying, because it, it's such a dark and at times sad and angry story but then you have these like beautiful friendships so at times it also kind of makes you feel good it makes you feel hopeful so just the fact that they were able to balance all of those emotions i think is a testament to the movie i want to shout out the wardrobe department too because this movie also does feel like a period piece and even though it's set in a prison where everyone dresses the same and it's kind of a, a drab setting the wardrobe in this movie just really makes you feel the time and, and also feel the passage of time as like their clothes get older and then stuff like that. So how do we compare this one to Pulp Fiction? Yeah, it's tough. A pretty straightforward movie, I would say, in Shawshank. And then you have Pulp Fiction, a movie that's like completely non-traditional. 
It's told completely out of order. At times, you're like randomly, oh, John Travolta's got shot. Oh, oh yeah, I guess, he, yeah, that was in the future. So, yeah, it's a very non-traditional movie versus what I would call a very traditional one. So, I mean, does that speak to you guys at all? Do you appreciate Pulp Fiction more because it's so different? Or do you think Shawshank just really knocks it out of the park for what it's doing, that it kind of outweighs it? And the ending is so satisfying, too. Yes, yes. I like that we get to spend just a little like one-on-one time at the end with Red. I think that was needed because he's kind of just been like the main supporting character and then getting to follow him as he gets out. In sharp contrast to, I think, James Whitmore is the actor that plays Brooks, which is still one of like, the most heartbreaking scenes, I feel like, in movies when he gets out and almost immediately takes his own life. So where the ending kind of focuses on Red following Andy's uh, weird like treasure hunt, if you want to call it that, is super satisfying, I think. I think you also just get to know the characters better in Shawshank Redemption, where you, you don't just because of the way the movie's made, you don't spend that much time with the characters in Pulp Fiction because you're constantly going to the other chapters. Um, and, and for both of these movies being very dialogue heavy, I, I think despite how many times I've seen both of these movies, I, I think Shawshank Redemption holds my interest a bit more than it does with Pulp Fiction. Because when you think about it with Pulp Fiction, there's really only like three key events in the film. There's John Travolta's death. There's Bruce Willis and Ben Rang's getting captured. And then there's the diner scene. And it's almost a three-hour movie, and there's really not a whole lot of like important events in the film. It's, it's a lot of time with just characters walking around or driving around and talking. And that's what I love about Pulp Fiction. I love the randomness of it, and it's so fun. But I already know where I'm going to vote, and I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to vote Shawshank. People use the term masterpiece for movies. I think this one definitely holds that, that, that regard. So it's going to get my vote. Yeah, I think Pulp Fiction is fantastic. But the thing that I think, I mean, it's such a good movie. The acting is so good. The way they tell the story is so crazy and so fun. And I agree with you, Austin, that there's not a lot of like huge like consequence, like world consequence ending or whatever you want to call it, like moments. But even the little things, while maybe they're not important, I think they kind of hold their own. Like I always think of Harvey Keitel coming in at the end as the wolf and just (laughs) helping uh, Jules and Vincent kind of clean up their mess. Um, And then, of course, just like the iconic moment at the beginning when Jules recites the fictional Ezekiel verse and then ends up uh, shooting the guy that won't stop saying what or whatever. (laughs) I mean, there's tons of moments (laughs) like that. But the thing um, that Keith just said there that kind of – hit me is like talking about it like a masterpiece. And it kind of reminded me what you said at the beginning, Austin. It's like, are there any perfect movies here? I'll say that Pulp Fiction, I think is a more interesting movie than The Shawshank Redemption. It might be a perfect thriller, oh, but yeah. I don't know if it's a perfect movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually would agree with that. The only thing that is in the back of my mind when talking about like a perfect movie, if we even want to keep doing that, is that the first half of Butch's story, the Bruce Willis story, has never grabbed me ever since I first watched it and up to my most recent viewing. And I love everything else about it, but The Shawshank Redemption, I think, maybe gets extra points because it is just one kind of traditionally told story. And I think it's perfect at what it does. Does Pulp Fiction do more in a more interesting and engaging way? Probably. But I think I'm going to go over The Shawshank Redemption as well because it is a masterpiece, as Keith said, of what it is trying to do, where there's a couple of missteps in Pulp Fiction for me. With Shawshank... um... They do such a good job of keeping the stakes up for the entirety of the movie. And you're actually scared and rooting for these characters. And, and everything that they do feels so consequential to their world of this prison. And they convey that in a way to where every decision they make, you're always wondering, like, how is this going to impact their time in prison? And you're, and you're very scared for these characters. And I don't get that same feeling with the characters in Pulp Fiction. I find them fun. I find the performance is good. But I will also have to go with the Shawshank Redemption. 
All right, so the Shawshank Redemption will go on to the semifinal round to face the winner of our upcoming round, The Dark Knight versus 12 Angry Men. Okay, so we have The Dark Knight, which came out in 2008. Um, it's directed by Christopher Nolan and stars Kristen Bale, Michael Caine, Heath Ledger, Gary Oldman, Aaron Eckhart, Maggie Gyllenhaal, and Morgan Freeman. Batman, Police Lieutenant James Gordon, and District Attorney Harvey Dent form an alliance to dismantle organized crime in Gotham City, but are menaced by an anarchist mastermind known as the Joker. Oh, man. All right, guys. I was excited to get to this point, because as somebody that browses IMDb a lot and like is familiar with the top 250, The Dark Knight has just been the, like that most recent movie to push through to this upper echelon. So it's our most recent movie from 2008, and it's a great movie. We talked about it very recently on our Batman retrospective podcast before the new Matt Reeves Batman came out. So I know we just talked about it, but guys, I mean... Talking about the most recent movie against one of our oldest movies on the bracket with 12 Angry Men that we just spent the first round gushing about how it holds up. I don't know. This might be a tough one. We'll see where it goes. I don't know. Anybody want to start? Here's, my, I guess, my, my preamble for The Dark Knight. The Batman character gets reinvent, reinvented so many times. And somehow this one has been the one to kind of take the cape and, and, and stand out amongst everything else that's come out for this character. And in, in my mind, it's a perfect Batman movie. And also in my mind, I think... We have our best villain in the Joker in this bracket. I can't really look at these other movies and point to a villain that's as fantastic in his performance as Heath Ledger is as this character. It's such a weird matchup. It's like Batman versus Lee J. Cobb. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Batman versus his greatest enemy, juror number four. <laughs> it's a tough one for me, but I also know that I'm a little bit different from you guys. Whereas like when I think about the perfect Batman movie, I think about something like Batman Begins. I love The Dark Knight. I think it's a better movie. But is it a perfect Batman movie? I don't know. It feels like a more like neo-noir story that just happens to feature the Batman and the Joker. That said, it's so good at what it does. It's so impactful. I love watching our three main characters of you know Bruce Wayne, Jim Gordon, and Aaron Eckhart. Watching them come together and try and do the right thing and then see where that goes because none of them can kind of comprehend a person like the Joker. I always think about Alfred's scene where he talks about, you know, some men just want to watch the world burn. An earlier story where he's like, in order to kind of capture a guy like, you know, we burned the whole forest down. It's like, yeah, that's too much. But for people like the Joker, that's what you have to do. Uh, they have no motive, like truly. And watching it go to where it goes by the end and the Joker's plan becomes to corrupt. Gotham's white knight Harvey Dent and the fact that he succeeds and then seeing Batman sacrifice at the end. I mean, it's a great story. It's really fantastic. And I, I really do like it. But where I'm stuck is, and maybe it's kind of recency bias, but 12 Angry Men, I watched it and I was like, this is the shortest movie on the bracket. It's basically 90 minutes long. And seeing what it did in that short of an amount of time introduced us to all these characters without ever giving us their names, except two of them in like the last 20 seconds. Uh, but we know kind of their profession, what their morals are, what their values are. Uh, and we understand every single time they vote not guilty or guilty. And then watching them turn over a vote by the end is like such a huge moment. And you always get it. And watching these demonstrations, watch these people just react to it and decide what they're going to do. And all the while, we never meet the defendant, right? We always just know in the background that this 18-year-old kid may have murdered somebody. But we're just stuck with the jury. As much as I love the Batman character, I think that kind of impressed me more. And that's a weird word to use, but I know it, it's, it's like we're talking about 50 years difference here. So it's a weird thing. But that 
that really stood out to me. Whereas The Dark Knight, to me, is a fantastic Batman movie. Maybe my favorite, but is it enough to beat something like Tolvan Grimena is kind of what I'm trying to figure out. I don't know. Every time I watch The Dark Knight, I'm, I'm always impressed with how the stories of every character intertwines. And there's not a single character in this movie that doesn't feel important to the plot, especially by the time you get to the, the culmination of the movie. Even Rachel is important to the story, and that's a, a character that they introduced for this franchise, and she becomes so important. Watching the Joker create Harvey Dent and then how the final act kind of becomes Harvey Dent as the main villain. Like, they get away from the Joker somehow, and, then, and it still feels important there. Like, all of that just has always really stood out to me, just how every piece of this movie, every piece of the mystery, every piece of Gotham feels so intertwined and connected and very important to the story. Twelvering and Men uses like nothing to make that movie it's just in one room and then the dark knight you has to use cgi and all these different stunt coordination and hundreds of different settings throughout gotham uh, it's just two very different movies i think the other cool thing about 12 angry men and its setting too is you spend so much time in this room and then when you get that one like five minute scene in the bathroom it's like oh wow this is a whole new place we've never seen before like somehow they made the bathroom feel exciting Yeah. yeah Definitely they did. I don't have too much thoughts here to really break this down. I think it's just more of what I think, you know, if we're, if we're debating the top 12 IMDb movies, then I'm going to have to go with 12 Angry Men. And I think that's because The Dark Knight, like I said, is one of my favorite superhero movies. But does it belong in the top 12 IMDb? I'm not sure. I think it's one of the best movies ever made, but I don't know if it's in the top 12. I would say maybe top 20, top 30. Well, I think 12 Angry Men is, just does so much more with not a lot and it's just so simple and I like the, the impact of the story I love the performances uh, I like the ending so I think I'm going to have 12 Angry Men move on for me I think I'm going to give my vote to The Dark Knight and that's because The Dark Knight is the best at everything it sets out to do it's the best Batman story we've ever gotten it gives us the best Batman villain we've ever seen in live action it gives us, to me, still the best Batman and Alfred relationship ever put on screen. So everything that Dark Knight is offering within that kind of superhero genre that's so uh, done and rehashed today is, is the best of the best. And I'm also just going to give extra bonus points to a really strong villain in Heath Ledger, and my vote will be the Dark Knight. All right. I guess it's up to me to break the tie. Uh, I agree with everything Austin just said. You know, it's like the best Batman film to date, best Batman-Alfred relationship, best Batman villain some of the best performances, all that stuff is true. I think while watching 12 Angry Men and like kind of going through the Dark Knight again after we just watched it a couple weeks ago, I, I think, yes, it is the best Batman movie. It is by far the best Batman villain. Whenever I say that, it's not like I'm saying, oh, best Batman, this isn't like one of the best film characters of all time. Best Batman villain, well, maybe the Joker is. But So it's kind of like, it's like there's a wall. It's basically, is this the best... Batman thing up to a point, and then does it go beyond that? And that's the thing about The Dark Knight for me. It doesn't always go beyond that. Whereas watching 12 Angry Men, this is one of like the best courtroom dramas I've ever seen. They're, these are some of the best characters I've ever seen. And the reason I'm saying this is because all I know about them are these little quirks, the way they speak, some of their professions. I don't know their names except for two of them. So yeah, I think what this one sets out to do is equally just fire on all cylinders. And it just did more for me. So I think I'm also going to vote for 12 Angry Men. All right. I'm not upset about it. I can't fault you guys. Uh, 12 Angry Men will go on to face the Shawshank Redemption in the semifinal round. All right. Next, we have The Godfather Part 1 versus The Return of the King. So The Godfather came out in 1972. It's directed by Francis Ford Coppola. 
stars Marlon Brando, Al Pacino, James Caan, Robert Duvall, and Diane Keaton. The story, spanning from 1945 to 1955, chronicles the Corleone family under a patriarch, Vito Corleone, focusing on the transformation of his youngest son, Michael, from reluctant family outsider to ruthless mafia boss. Uh, this is an easy one. I think it's The Godfather. <laughs> I think it's The Fellowship of the Ring. Oh, wait, that's not even in here. <laughs> <laughs> Are we all in agreement on The Godfather, my friends? Yeah, it's pretty easy. Yeah, it's, it's definitely The Godfather. There's no way Frodo's beating out Vito Corleone. <laughs> Frodo can't beat Vito. <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk about it more, but I, I do just want to say I think the arc of Michael Corleone is one of the best arcs ever put All on screen. Time. His transition is incredible. And also the way the Godfather Part 1 culminates in its finale is just enthralling every time. So good. Okay, so the Godfather, we're going to talk about it more, but it is going to move on to the semifinals. And to find out what it's going up against, we now have the Godfather Part 2 versus Schindler's List. So The Godfather Part Two came out only two years after its predecessor in 1974. Of course, it's directed once again by Francis Ford Coppola, stars Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Robert Duvall, Diane Keaton, John Cazale, and Lee Strasberg. The film serves as both a sequel and a prequel to The Godfather, presenting parallel dramas. One picks up the 1958 story of Michael Corleone, the new dawn of the Corleone family, protecting the family business in the aftermath of an attempt on his life. The prequel covers the journey of his father, Vito, from his Sicilian childhood to the founding of his family enterprise in New York City. So th this one's easy for me, and, and I'll just say I, I think Schindler's List should move on here. The reason for that is I, I think The Godfather Part Two is a fantastic movie. I don't think it would be as good as it is without The Godfather Part One. Um, I think it does try to recreate a lot of things from The Godfather Part One that I don't find as interesting to see again in Part Two. I find the prequel story uh, with Vito very fun and very interesting. But overall, I think The Godfather Part 1 is the better movie in the Godfather franchise. I get more of an emotional result from Schindler's List. Yeah, those are all great points. I would, I would never fault that. I mean, the movie definitely stands on the shoulders of its predecessor with the original Godfather. I do think this one does get a lot of points in my book because it takes things from the original that weren't developed and makes them kind of the forefront of what's going on. It really is like, Okay, Michael, so you're the family outsider and you begrudgingly, not only for yourself, but to your father, had to become the head of this family. And then, you know, at the end of the first Godfather, he kills his sister's uh, husband for probably the right reasons. But then, you know, cut to the second one, which is, again, only two years later. They didn't have much time to think about this. And all of a sudden, John Cazale as Fredo is like at the forefront of this story. And I think this one really kind of forces you to think about what family means, not only to you, but in the context of a story like this, where it's like, oh, you're untouchable. And watching that, and I think the emotions do run high wherever we get to the iconic scene during the party of, you know, Michael kissing Fredo and then just telling him to his face that he knows he was one that betrayed him. And watching where that goes at the end, I still think the ending of this movie ties everything, not only from this movie specifically, but kind of it ties the entire duology because i've never seen the third one but it ties like the first two together so perfectly where like he orders the hit on fredo gets him killed and then it shows michael sitting by himself and it's like wow you did it michael you stopped the threats against you but at the same time now you truly have nobody and then watching that cut to up like a prequel scene of Vito coming home where they're sitting around like the family dinner table and michael's the only one that's like eh not for me and it's kind of like we've talked a lot about journeys in this episode, watching where characters go 
from the beginning of the movie to the end and watching where Michael was at the beginning of the first movie to that both uh, present day and flashback scene at the end of two, I think is just, man, I, it's such a beautiful story. So I guess what I'm saying is the only thing I disagree with Austin a little bit is I think two stands on its own a little bit better than he does. But then again, I mean, Schindler's List is still great. So I'm still you know trying to think about it a little bit. Yeah, the arc of Michael is what I love in The Godfather Part 1. Um, I, I don't think he has as much of an arc in Part 2 as he sure. did in Part 1. And I think the arc of Oscar Schindler and Schindler's List, while at times maybe it's a bit underdeveloped, I still think the arc of that character is really fascinating to watch as it goes on. The other thing I'll say, too, about Schindler's List is I did find the kind of the chess game that Oscar has to play with the SS officers at the concentration camps. I, I thought, always found that really engaging how he has to make it seem like he's enjoying this when really he's, you know, hosing down the trains because he's just trying to get these people to cool off and get them water. But he has to like make it seem like he's laughing and joking to the SS officers, like little things like that. I was, I was like, wow, this is fascinating. Yeah. I think if, if Godfather part one and Godfather part two was like one long movie, then I think we'd beat Schindler's List because there's so much I do like in Godfather part two. I like, I, I like seeing a young, a young Vito, Robert De Niro, um, and his like the way he kind of navigates his way from Italy to New York, but yeah, I, I just like I like Marlon Brando better as Vito as an older Vito, and I like James Caan's character. Uh, yeah. I just like a lot, a lot of the performances better than Godfather Part One. So comparing Godfather Part Two to Schindler's List, I think I'm gonna go with Schindler's List. Yeah, I think I would vote the Godfather Part Two. Uh, I won't get into as much why I think I already kind of did. It's interesting because I think the one thing I differ on both of you is that I I prefer The Godfather Part 2 to the original. So I think that kind of might explain some of my reasonings. No issue with Sinuslis going on, but uh, yeah, so not quite a unanimous vote, but it's close. I, I definitely, I had to think about that one for a while. It's funny, Matt, you mentioned um, extended cuts a second ago. And on HBO Max, there are the extended cuts of all of the Lord of the Rings movies. And I They're did not seek good. those out for this bracket. They're very good. <laughs> All right, everybody, we got through round one and round two. Welcome to the semifinals. I think things are going to get pretty damn tough at this point. So let's just throw it out there. Let's start at one of the toughest ones ever to get us started. We have The Shawshank Redemption, which, to remind you, is the number one ranked movie versus 12 Angry Men, which is the number fifth. I might have to lean towards something like 12 Angry Men for me in this one. I just... I find the filmmaking of that movie so fascinating, being set in that room, keeping you engaged for an entire hour and a half. You don't have really any set pieces in this movie. It's one room in black and white. It's sweaty. It's rainy. That's really it. And somehow it's super engaging. I do love the friendship in Shawshank Redemption and all the relationships there. Um, but, uh, and you've called this out a lot, Matt, in 12 Angry Men. You don't even learn the characters' names, and somehow you're still invested. I think I'm just more fascinated by 12 Angry Men at this stage in the bracket. Right now, I'm kind of leaning more towards Shawshank, but I like what Austin just said there. And I'm really, I'm really proud of Austin for liking 12 Angry Men. <laughs> <laughs> He's back, baby. <laughs> it's no, it's a wonderful life, but it'll do, I guess. Oh, how dare you. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Stewart? <laughs> Jimmy Stewart. I'll keep this one simple, and maybe I'll have to get into it more if we get like really locked on this vote. But I'm going to... The reason I think I voted for Shawshank earlier because it went up against Pulp Fiction is because – and it, I know it's a completely a personal take. I love Pulp Fiction, but it just – there's a couple storylines in there that I don't care about as much. That I don't think pay off as much. 
So that one wasn't like perfect what it was doing. I voted for Shawshank because I feel like it's perfect at what it is doing. And I still feel that way. But the word that I kept using was Shawshank is very traditional. Roger Deacon shoots it and it looks beautiful. But I think at the end of the day, it really is a story about friendship, hope, redemption, all that good stuff. And all that makes sense to me. But 12 Angry Men, I think, is also a perfect movie. And I think it kind of fills that Pulp Fiction void where this one is kind of non-traditional too, but not in its story. It's not traditional in the way it just presents itself in its premise. It's like, all right, this story is about 12 jurors that sit in a room and the entire 90 minute runtime is just about us deciding on a case and it has to be unanimous. And I love the Shawshank Redemption, but I'm going against my traditional argument here because while that one is very straightforward, 12 Angry Men the story is, but everything about it isn't. And that's what I love about it. Like you said, Austin, we don't know these characters really that well, but we still understand them, all 12 of them completely. And the fact that they did that in 90 minutes is insane. So if we're talking about the more perfect movie, I kept saying Shawshank is perfect at what it does. 12 Angry Men is perfect at what it does too. But I think what 12 Angry Men is trying to do is just way more interesting to me. So I think I have to vote for it as well. I think 12 Angry Men also does such a good job of giving you the stakes at the beginning of the movie with the judge saying, you have to be unanimous. If there is anything in your mind that has a doubt, you must vote not guilty. And that just that little thing right there to set us up. And then that being the crux of the movie is maybe he's guilty, uh, but it's possible he may not be. And that's the argument for the entire movie it was so yeah. fascinating to me. And, and they always tie back to those stakes and they never really lose sight of that. I think I might have to go with 12 Angry Men as well. I think you guys swayed me to go that way because these two, man, I mean, this is a tough matchup, but yeah, I just like what it does with, with nothing, like just purely dialogue and emotion and it, you don't really have that many set pieces. It's a table, actors, and a few cameras. Yeah. And they've made one of the best movies ever made. It's insane. And some rain sounds outside. <laughs> That's it. And some sweaty armpit stains. Oh, yeah. Definitely some sweaty armpits. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. Can we talk about how they go into the bathroom in 12 Angry Men and they're all using the same paper towel to wash their face and hands? Did you guys notice that? <laughs> no. Yeah, because it's like connected. It doesn't tear. That was disgusting. <laughs> Ugh. I'm voting for Shawshank. <laughs> <laughs> that shocked me genuinely. <laughs> well, 12 Angry Men will move on to the finals of the IMDb Top 12 Bracket. And to find out its matchup, we now have The Godfather Part 1 versus Schindler's List. All right. Well, I want to throw it to you guys immediately because we literally just talked about Godfather Part 2 versus Schindler's List. And you guys are saying, well, I think I just like the journey in the first one a bit better. If that was going to get Schindler's List, that'd be one thing. So I got to give it to you guys. Now it's happening. It's here. What do you guys want to do? Well, I, I just like the journey in The Godfather Part 1 better. All right. I think right now I might have to give my vote to The Godfather Part 1. Um, I just, I think it's, it, it's one of the best movies ever made. Um, it, it's such a fascinating story. There's no bad performances here. It kind of sets the tone for any future mob movies that ever came after it. Um, and just everything about this movie, I think, works on all levels. And it's also somehow stood the test of time. Yeah, I'm with you. I think it definitely set the tone for the future mob movies like Goodfellas and Casino or I mean all those kind of movies but yeah while I, while I love Schindler's List I think it's a great story great movie great acting um the whole and just the impact of telling that that story about the uh, the Holocaust but I think we're talking about a well-rounded movie though The Godfather I think is definitely going to take it more 
I think too, last round I mentioned that I found the arc of Oscar Schindler very interesting, but that's going up against the arc of Michael and the Godfather part two. I think the arc of Michael and Godfather part one as this guy that shows up coming back from the war and, and really doesn't want anything to do with his family. And then by the end of the movie is ordering the hits of all these other crime families. That arc is so fascinating. And I, I definitely found it more interesting than Oscar Schindler's. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep this one uh, simple, I think. I love Schindler's List. I don't have any issues with it. My only like little nitpick, like I said earlier, is just that to me at times for a movie that is as long as this is Oscar Schindler goes from being kind of this just, you know, ass at the beginning of the movie to where he's at at the end as this hero. I think that's great. But it, just at times it takes a little bit too long than after these like kind of huge moments like, I don't know, seeing this young kid get killed. He It's still he's conversing with Ray Fine's character and you're like, okay, I know he's playing a part, but at times it's like, does he care? And then he gets with Ben Kingsley and it's like, he's still pushing back on saving a number of these people. And I understand his position. I'm not trying to diminish that. It's just at times, like kind of like you said, Austin, the full arc by the end feels a little bit unearned. I'm not talking about the real life person. I'm talking about in the context of Liam Neeson playing Oscar Schindler in a movie. And when you talk about The Godfather Part 1, the arc of Marco Corleone, I think, is one of the best to ever do it. Top five. Um, the movie itself, while I'm a Godfather Part 2 guy, I hear what you guys are saying about the first one. And yeah, watching Michael just seamlessly fall into this position where it's like his dad never wanted him to be here. But the second he does, he knows exactly what to do and he's good at it. It's kind of scary. <laughs> uh, I always love the little trip to Sicily and watching what that means as well. I think I got to vote for it as well. I do think though Schindler's List is one of those movies that everybody needs to see. Yeah, it's important. Please watch it if you haven't. All right. Well, The Godfather Part 1 will now be facing 12 angry men in our final round of the top 12 bracket. Uh, Matt, you're Godfather Part 2 guy. How are you feeling about The Godfather Part 1 versus 12 angry men? Well, I may be a Godfather Part 2 guy. I do love the first one an incredible amount. One of my favorites of all time. Uh, it's one of those weird things where now 12 Angry Men is one of my favorites of all time, even though I just watched it like this week, basically, for the first time. It's going to be tough. We talked about at the beginning, our criteria. Do we want to try and vote for the more perfect movie? And we keep talking about it along the way. Well, I think this is perfect what it's doing. I think, well, I think this is perfect what it's doing. Here's a classic finals, because I think 12 Angry Men is absolutely perfect at what it's doing. And The Godfather is absolutely perfect at what it's doing. But those things are different. So I guess maybe it's going to come down to a subjective thing. Like, what works for you more? What do you appreciate more? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out. Matt may be a, a Godfather Part 2 man. I, I might be an angry men man. Ooh. I'm uh, just really <laughs> fascinated with this movie. I'm angry. <laughs> <laughs> you are right, Matt. We do keep talking about perfect movies. And something that might have to come into consideration here might be the runtime about these movies. I mean, I know we've mentioned it, but 12 Angry Men is an hour and a half. The Godfather Part 1 is, is, I think, over three hours long. And to do what 12 Angry Men did in an hour and a half is pretty incredible to me. And because of the runtime in The Godfather Part 1, there are moments that I think drag and I do find somewhat boring. And that may be the one thing that is keeping it from being a perfect movie for me versus something like 12 Angry Men. I mean, I've touched on it so many times now with 12 Angry Men. I just like how they can do so much with not a lot. And I like how an hour and a half is all they needed. Especially in our era of like big budget, massive CGI films like Avengers Endgame and things like that. It's so wild to go watch a movie with literally a table, 12 actors and a few cameras. I think the thing that's kind of holding me back here a little bit is 12 Angry Men is such a flawless film. 
I, I can't think of a single thing I didn't like about it. Everything is earned. Uh, even the characters, like I said earlier, that we that don't really talk too much, like the one guy with glasses that keeps kind of changing his vote. You kind of get it by the end. But yeah, the thing that's holding me back is I've talked about now the same argument with Shawshank and Pulp Fiction before it. But The Godfather, I'm struggling to think of anything that I don't like about it either. I understand Austin's point that like, should we reward 12 Angry Men because it does what it does in a shorter amount of time? Sure. I think it's a valid point. But The Godfather is, to be fair, I would call it an epic. I mean, it's this weird, like, decade-long story with all of these characters, and you understand them all by the end. You understand all of their roles. You understand all of their purposes and kind of their just thoughts and opinions on like the current leadership. So it's just a classic example in our final situation where it, they're just so different. It's like, I, I wouldn't want the Godfather part one to be shorter because it's this epic kind of detailed long story. So I think to be any shorter would do it a bit of a disservice. But there's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> so it's like there's something I can go, oh, I should have cut that out. Oh, I should have cut that out. It just it just works for me. So they're just such different movies. It's, it's really it's making it hard to vote here. I think the other thing I'm thinking about, too, is I really like the social commentary of 12 Angry Men. Uh, and, and you don't have that aspect with The Godfather Part One. I think my thing with these two is, and I'm, br- I'm going to bring back something, an old school Arnie thing here, and that's rewatchability, baby. <laughs> oh, wow. I don't know if it's old school. You bring it up every bracket. No, I try not to bring it up last two brackets. I've tried to like keep it off, but I'm bringing it back full force here. I think at like a year from now, now that we've already, because we all just recently watched these, but a year from now, if someone said, hey, let's put on a movie. There, but we only have two, only two DVDs, 12 Angry Men and The Godfather. Which one do you want to put on? It would not be The Godfather because you need your entire afternoon cleared for that. <laughs> I might have to say 12 Angry Men. I get it, guys. I get it. But I will push back. I feel like I've always been a bit more with Keith on rewatchability. That is something I appreciate too. But in this specific case, I mean, The Godfather's so good though. I'm not, I agree with you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't watch that over 12 Angry Men. I think I would probably always pick 12 Angry Men. But I was still, while watching, you know what I would do? While watching 12 Angry Men, I'd be like, God, the Godfather's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't have three hours, but I wish I was watching it. I've gotten to a point where I'm ready to vote. So I'll throw mine out All there. Right. Just throw it out there, Austin. Throw it out there. My vote is 12 Angry Men. I think it is a perfect movie. And that hour and a half runtime, the fact that they made a perfect movie in that amount of time, is fascinating to me. I'm going to second Austin. I'm going to go with 12 Angry Men. I love The Godfather. I think it is one of the best movies of all time. Obviously, it made this list, but I think 12 Angry Men has just impressed me just by an inch more. I'll be honest, I'm still not fully decided, but where I'm leaning right now, I think, is 12 Angry Men. I think I'm kind of with you guys. I don't feel 100%. I'm still trying to think about, oh, remember Robert Duvall in Godfather Part 1? He's so good. But I think, I think 12 Angry Men. We kept talking about a perfect movie. Whenever Austin first brought that up, I was like, I mean, it's a good point, but I mean, are we going to find that here? And after talking about it through all these rounds, I really do think we did. I think there's a bunch of great movies on this bracket, not a bad one in the mix, but this is a perfect movie. It is a masterpiece. It's everything that goes into what, what a movie should be. You've got fantastic performances. You've got really interesting filmmaking things behind the scene. You've got a great story. Um, you've even got an interesting set in this courtroom. And as a bonus too, you've got really good social commentary. I think Everything that you need to really enjoy the filmmaking process and everything like that goes into 12 Angry Men. It's art, man. It's so good. True art. I can't wait to watch it again, honestly. So we've just decided uh, the best movie ever made. 
and that's 12 Angry Men. But I wanted to ask you guys, because deciding to be top 12 is decided just by fans and not necessarily by critics or, or anything else like that. Uh, was there anything in this bracket that you don't think should have been here? Do you think we should have had any other movies, maybe any, any movies that like kind of fall into the top 20? Anything in your mind that should have been in this bracket? For me, I don't think The Good, Bad, and The Ugly should have been here. I would take out The Good, Bad, and The Ugly, and I think I might sub in something like Amadeus. Ooh, I don't hate that pick. I don't hate that at all. <laughs> I have an easy one. Here, I'll do three for you. As somebody that maybe is a bit more positive, I'll, I'll try and be a bit more negative here. So, easy one. I agree with you guys. I really, really did like watching Good, Bad, and The Ugly, but it, it's not like in my personal top 12. And yeah, I thought it was good, but I don't see it being that high. I would also take out one of the Lord of the Rings movies. I don't care which one it is. I don't think both of them need to be in the top 12. And then prepare for controversy, guys. I guess it shouldn't be too surprising because I kind of alluded to it earlier. But when I was younger, sure. As I've gotten older, Forrest Gump is not a top 12 of all time. I'm sorry. I just don't Ooh. think it is. I think I actually agree with that. I think you actually could take out Forrest Gump and maybe put in Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, oh, I could agree like with that. that. Yeah. I was surprised Saving Private Ryan wasn't higher. Keith, are you upset that we didn't talk about Star Wars today? I was just about to bring it up. That's a good point. <laughs> I think, That's a good point. I think Empire Strikes Back could have been in here. Or at least top 15. Not Attack of the Clones? <laughs> no. I love Sin. Or I hate Sin. <laughs> That's bottom 250. I love Sin. <laughs> I love Sin. Gets everywhere. <laughs> so the, the two for me, eh, I guess I should say three. So looking at number 15, 16, and 17 on the 250 list, we have, we just mentioned it, episode five, The Empire Strikes Back. I would have loved to seen that just to see how far that would have gone. I'm a huge fan of the original Matrix. I think that's one of the greatest movies ever made. That would have been up there for me. And then we kind of talked about it because we talked about a lot of these mobster stories. And I don't know, man, one of the best to ever do it is Scorsese with Goodfellas. That movie rocks. Goodfellas is, so that, yeah. that's up there for me, too. So if any of those three had been in this bracket, I think it would have made things a bit more challenging for me. Well, maybe in the future we, we leave 12 Angry Men in but then we expand it out to the top 50 and we make our own top 12 list and go through it that way. I like that idea. That's actually, ooh, yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be fun. I think Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade should have been in the top oh. 12. Ooh, that wouldn't go very far. I'm with you, Keith. Keith and I would have pushed that to the end. That's one of my favorite <laughs> movies. <laughs> well, there you go. There's our winner, 12 Angry Men. You are the winner of our IMDb top 12 bracket, which I guess also means you're one of the best movies of all time slash the most perfect movies of all time. I don't know. You're a lot of good things. We love you. Congratulations. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit that follow button so you never miss our upcoming content. Also, if you wouldn't mind sharing us with a friend, we really would appreciate that to continue to grow our show. Please leave us reviews as well. Even if you don't want to write anything, leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts really does help us out. At The Arnie's is our social, and thearnies.media is the website. We'll be back on Tuesday for another round of our favorite movies. In the past, we've done Cloud Atlas, Prisoners, Hell or High Water, and The Mask of Zorro, all beginning off this new round with Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind from Michelle Gondry and Jim Carrey. You guys ever seen this one? I actually haven't seen this one, so I'll be excited to check this out. I have never seen it either. Ooh, I'm excited for you Is guys. Is this a depression movie? Uh... There, there's, there's elements of that, but I think, I think you'll be surprised with what you get. I'll say that. I think I'm thinking of Melancholia. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think you are, too. That's very <laughs> depressing. 
<laughs> and also, if you want to hear our thoughts on a very average Ryan Reynolds movie, uh, last <laughs> week we put out our thoughts on The Adam Project, a new Netflix original starring Ryan Reynolds as Deadpool for the 14th time. If you want to hear our thoughts on that, be sure to go check that out. Lastly, we want to hear from you. So please send us a message on Instagram at the Arnie's or email us thearniesmedia at gmail.com. Which of our bracket movies stood out to you? And let us know if you think we picked the right winner. Anything you say, we'll read on the show and react to it live on our latest episode. All right, everybody, have a great rest of your week. We'll be back next Tuesday for a little throwback discussion of Eternal Sunshine. So look forward to that. See you then. See ya. Don't be so angry. Why are we so angry? (laughs) 